to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Delighted to be joined by Niraj Shah today. Niraj and I have known each other for a number of years, and in that time, he's been on quite a fascinating journey from stroke survivor at the age of just 30 years old to wellness and technology entrepreneur. He talks us through that journey in great depth and some of the things he's learned along the way, and we try and apply it to the cycling world and the cycling community. It's a slightly different topic this week, but we hope you enjoy it. And if you have any questions at all, as ever, please feel free to reach out to us, contact at unfound.cc. That's contact at unfound.cc. And indeed, Neeraj's contact details will be in the show notes. He's happy to help or happy to answer any questions that you might have around meditation or entrepreneurialism or, or anything else. But without further ado, please join me in welcoming Neeraj Shah. Today, I'm joined with a very old friend of mine, Neeraj Shah, who's actually not a cyclist, so a slightly different theme today. We've got someone that's been, well, someone who is a, an absolute inspiration with an incredible story. I obviously introduced him prior, but Neeraj, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Very good. Well, I don't know if we want to start by kicking off with you sort of telling us a little bit about your journey, probably from the last time that you and I really knew each other. I suppose it was the last time the world was in a distressing time, sort of just post the, the GFC. And that's that's what going back sort of 2009 or 2010-ish. Is that, is that when end, things end of, took End of 2008. So yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting you say that because the world has come full circle. We, we went through a, a pretty major crisis. We've come back to probably a bigger crisis. So yeah, that that was you and I, we, we go way back. We used to work together. We used to work together in the headhunting field. And at the time that that happened, I was in Hong Kong. And uh, for personal reasons, I came back to London and moved companies. So I, th- I think a couple of things happened. One was that I ended up having to sort of take a job that I wasn't really very sure about, but the people seemed really good. And what happened over the course of the next year is that I really didn't enjoy the environment that I was working in. I think I think you and I worked for very good firms before that. And by very good, I mean firms that had some semblance of ethics and uh, some really good practices. And I was working for a recruitment firm there, which didn't really have those things. You know, it's was, it was just being really open about it. It was a kind of place where you can't really trust your teammates and where you can't really trust your boss. And as a result of that, I started thinking about, started thinking about, what else I could do because my plan was always to start my own business. That that was always the, the plan. And I was getting to my late twenties and I was thinking that I really need to get on with this. So I I had initially thought that I would do something in the recruitment world, but then I fell out of love with it and decided that, well, what I'm really interested in is health and technology. So I started spending my evenings and weekends researching those sort of things. Right? Yeah. And then from there, I made a firm decision that I'm going to leave this company. I'd set an exit date and I was a few months into that process and I was pretty determined that you know this was going to be my exit. And out of nowhere, at the age of 30, when I was perfectly healthy and very suddenly I had a full-blown stroke, a very serious one at that. So I think, I think this was, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure you and I were in touch in the aftermath of this. Yeah, look, I mean, I think obviously with where you, this journey takes you, I'm very keen to sort of talk about 
where you are in meditation in your current startup because I think there there is a, a huge focus for cyclists I think cyclists can learn a lot around the mental side of training but but certainly this event is of interest as well I think that people aren't aware that, that these kind of health episodes can happen to people at such a young age and also just how you turned your life around post such a a dramatic physical uh, event at such a young age is quite inspirational as i said this is obviously a cycling podcast i think most cyclists are, are pretty determined and disciplined people but and that's why i kind of wanted to get you on because i think it's quite an inspirational story for, for anyone really so talk talk us through the actual event i mean obviously you were 30 years old so not strokes not something normally on on the radar for someone of that age when did it happen how did it happen how did you know you were having it yeah so um it wasn't on my radar either at the time it happened i didn't even know what what it was. Uh, I, th- I think the important thing to point out here is that an event like that is very, very rare, very rare indeed. So it's not, it, it, it's in the same category of being in a plane crash or something like that. When, when you look at the probabilities of these things, especially because I didn't have any underlying health conditions, I didn't have any hereditary history. Th- these are the main pointers to that kind of thing. And for anyone that doesn't know, a stroke is a very serious type of brain injury where there's an interruption to the blood flow to the brain. So, uh, you, you know, ju- just I- I'm going to gloss over the details because you and I have got quite a lot of things to talk about that, yeah, of course, that I, of course. I don't really want to get into. But the long and short of it is that I, I was very, very lucky. I was at home by myself when it happened. I didn't know what was happening, but I, I knew I was in serious trouble. I managed to ring 999. An ambulance turned up pretty quickly and they took me to hospital, told me that it's probably just an ear infection and not to worry too much. But at the same at the same time, whilst they were telling me those things, they were, you know, sort of booking me in for brain scans and those kind of things. But I was, I was too, they'd stabilised me and I was too drugged up to really understand what was going on. And the next day, a doctor came to me and said, I'm really sorry, but it, it turns out this is more serious than we, we think you had thought and you've had a stroke. And that's when I had to wow. learn more about what what had happened because I just I didn't know what that was I just knew it happened to older people so yeah the, the the basics of it is that they kept me in for a couple of weeks and they did a lot of tests they the, the hospital I was at they have an incredibly good stroke unit I had a very good neurologist that this was our national health service at its absolute finest so I've I've long been appreciative of of them and again one of the nice things about what's going on at the moment is that we're now appreciating our health workers but they kept me in for a couple of weeks did, did lots and lots of tests and eventually my neurologist said look we're, we're going to discharge you we don't know why it's happened but what we can say with some confidence is that it looks like you're going to make pretty full recovery. I, I so, so we weren't sure at that stage what the brain damage or anything like that was, except that I was coherent and I could talk and I could think, which which I'm very grateful for. But I, I had lost the use of my legs. It, it wasn't that there wasn't. It wasn't that there wasn't strength in my legs. I just couldn't move them anymore because the part of my brain that's dead dead is the part that controls balance. So I basically had to relearn how to walk. And uh, that that started in hospital and it continued when I got home. And eventually, but about a month from there, I started being able to walk again. And I think a couple of weeks after that, I could go outside by myself. So whilst this was all going on, luckily, my mindset was that I don't know why this has happened, but I need to minimize the chance of it happening again. We didn't know the cause. Yeah. And statistically, I'm in a really bad place because 
the, the chance of reoccurrence in that first year especially is very high and it stays high for a couple of years so that's where an interest in health and well-being became an absolute obsession about vitality brain function that sort of thing so that, that was probably the first part of the shift from a help you know an interest to now I need to do everything and learn everything in this space so, so that I can just just minimize my chance of this sort of thing happening again does that make sense I think that's a pretty justified uh, catalyst yeah. for for reevaluating re- your lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. Raise. Actually, I didn't realise that that learning to walk was something that that you you had to do. In fact, that and the fact that balance element of your brain was the bit that was uh, damaged. That's yeah. that's quite must be quite frightening, sort of coming up and sort of having to deal with that at such a young age as well. You must be sort of contemplating how and why me and just doesn't doesn't really make sense and you couldn't really get the questions answers from the doctors either yeah i I think i think the question why did this happen to me what was a is it's a question that has no answer right like 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 random things happen to people it just happens this can happen to anyone but the chance of it happening is very 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 low so that was one question but i think i remember sitting in hospital sitting up in my bed or lying in my bed and when they told me there's a good chance I'm going to make a recovery, that the thing I thought about, because I'm not a cyclist, but I am a snowboarder, and, and I think there's a lot of similarities when you're in love with a discipline and when you do it as much as you can. And as you know, that's a really big part of my life now. So I remember yeah. thinking that within 12 months, I'm going to be back on a snowboard. And there was no basis as to why that could be the case. But that thought was one that really kept me going because it was like, okay, wh- why am I doing all this physio? Why am I doing all this stuff? Because come rain or shine, I'm getting back on a damn snowboard. And I think that's probably something that your folks can really identify with yeah not only the passion for it but also setting that goal as, as in fact that was going to be my next question you know i know you had ideas around sort of changing your path career wise and wanting to do something different and then obviously this major event happened but but how do you go from having those ideas to starting to execute it and obviously setting a goal like getting back out on the snowboard i, I think you know i think skiing and snowboarding is very so you get a lot of benefits similar kind of benefits to why we love cycling as well in terms of the freedom and sort of exploration and, and experience element that that is such a powerful thing yeah for sure um so so the question was in in terms of how did i start that recovery or yeah like how how did you you know i think saying you want to change your life and change your lifestyle and and focus on on well-being and and both mentally and physically is one thing and then doing it is is completely different i mean how obviously it wasn't sort of a, a straight line trajectory what what was your obviously you had an intensive physiotherapy you obviously had to sort of mentally get your head around what had happened but but talk us through sort of the first few months and the journey and and that first year to getting back out on the slopes i, th- I think the things that really helped me and there's some parallels with what's happening in the world at the moment because i i went through this deep trauma and there was no explanation for it and i think collectively we're going through this deep trauma at the moment most of us and, and there's no explanation for what it happened and first of all the, the idea was I was being driven by fear, right? And and I think that's not always a negative thing. Sometimes it's shown as a negative thing, but the fear was that this could happen to me again and, and I really don't want it to, so I'm going to minimize that chance. So I'm going to learn about nutrition. I'm going to learn about exercise. I'm going to learn about stress management. I'm going to learn about brain function, et cetera, et cetera. But the other thing that recovery did, I had to spend a period of time at home, right? The physical recovery took me about six months. So I was forced, my neurologist was very, very smart and he gave me two 
absolute recommendations, which I'll tell you about in a second. I'll, I'll tell you the first and I'll tell you the second in a few minutes because that's quite instrumental to the rest of the story. The first one was he said you have to sleep every afternoon and you have to get a good amount of sleep. So knowing what we know now about sleep, he was very ahead of his time and, and he knew, being a brain specialist, that sleep is a critical part of recovery and it's when all those things happen in our brain and body which you know all the cleaning functions and all the all all of that kind of thing so I had to sleep and I was at home and I had to do some physical recovery and other than that all I could do was read and think so it gave me a pause and it forced a pause and it gave me a deep appreciation for the fact that I can wake up and that I can walk and that I can think and that I do have a memory and that I can go outside by myself and I can feel the wind on my face and all all these things that I think I had taken for granted until that point in my life and I haven't for the last 10 years. But I'm I'm seeing similar things in what some people are saying about the The nature of what's happened now. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of forcing, it kind of forced you to be more mindful, right? It's all the all the things you take for granted, all the all the things you sort of slip into that sort of autopilot, and you and you don't notice the birds tweeting and the wind blowing and the sun. Yeah. And I th- think you know that that can sound a little bit cheesy, but we've got to put it in context that there's many, many, probably billions of people in the world who don't have those luxuries. You know that they don't have food on the table, they they don't have security around their situation because we we lose track in. The Western world, you know, anybody who can cycle for a hobby or snowboard for a hobby probably doesn't have to deal with those kind of things. Yeah. So, yeah, so right. the, the the point the point is that doesn't mean they're any less of a gift. It's just that we have to acknowledge that and start understanding that just by having those things, we've actually won the demographic lottery. So, so that was a big realization: deep gratitude, a lot of fear around. I don't know why this happened, and I want to minimize that chance. And the other recommendation my neurologist had was. He said the only physical thing he wanted me to do until I'd recovered fully was either take up yoga or take up swimming. And because I didn't have a swimming pool like really near to where I live, then it was yoga by default. And also being of Indian origin, I was familiar with yoga and I'd had done some as a kid. So that 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 became the thing. And the very first session I went to, I, I just knew at that point I'd done something amazing for my body. So that started becoming something I did two or three times a week to, and it just stayed as a habit because then when I did eventually recover and when I did eventually start that first business uh, about a year and a half later, the the yoga practice was the bit that meant I could sleep really well at night. Yeah. I didn't realize you'd, you'd basically done no yoga and, and, and until the incident. So that was part of the rehab basically. Well, well, I think at the time that you and I were working together, I was just more into restaurants and pubs than, than doing yoga. So you and I both. Excellent. Okay, so so obviously yoga became a, a key part of your life. Yeah, so it became something I did two or three times a week. And then when I started my first business, which of course is a stressful process, especially the first time, because the stress comes from not knowing how to do this and having the uncertainty of that first time business. And I, I just found that way that I did yoga then, I used to do about 20 minutes at night, no matter if I finished at 11, 12, 1am, because I'm, I'm a bit of a night owl. So I, I just, as a unbreakable rule, I'd do about 20 minutes of yoga. And I used to sleep really, really well. And I knew it was because it was giving me a bit of mental processing space between a stressful work life and and transitioning into sleep and that i'd say that's still true today and, and you still practice every day today before bed and Pr- part pretty, of your much, routine yeah, now pr- pr- pretty much yeah. there's, there's been there's been times where it's kind of the before bed things 
has come and gone, but more recently it's become much more of a habit again. And what what I find is if I'm more physically active, then I make more of a point to do that because there's physical benefits as well, of course, to stretching out your body. So so, so the way I think about it is... Yeah, and all cyclists need to know that as well. It's great for the hips and most cyclists have desperately tight hips. Yeah, and I, th- I, th- I think if you're if you're a cyclist and you're sitting at a desk or sedentary in your job, then that's a recipe for disaster for your hips. Exactly. So you, you know, a- a- actually, a large part of what I do is just some very passive hip openers and and that kind of thing. So I'd, I'd say you know, for me, th- there was physical benefits, but then there's also some really interesting mental benefits that aren't so obvious from that kind of practice yeah and so for, from yoga is that how you sort of started to explore the world of meditation is that yeah that about? exactly yeah. i started dabbling in meditation because the, the way that yoga worked for me was that i went to six classes at a local studio to just do a bit of a foundation and and then i stopped going to the studio because i didn't want to be around other people i was 30 years old i've just had a stroke and i was trying to figure out who i was and i, I just didn't really want to be around others is a very dark time in terms of the kind of thoughts i was having a lot of thoughts about what what is this existence is it even worth it you know without i i never had any suicidal tendencies i wasn't depressed i was just looking at it with cold hard logic and thinking about what the worst case scenarios here are so it meant that i didn't want to be around other people So, so yoga became something i did at home by myself and actually in hindsight that was so good because it forced me to start exploring and learning. And through that, I started dabbling in meditation and started coming across some literature around meditative practice being really good for focus and creativity and stress management and so on. And yeah. me being skeptical, because I am quite skeptical about the wellness world in general, I think there's a lot of pseudoscience out there, a lot of tall claims. So I started researching into, well, has anyone done any studies? Has anyone really looked at this? And then what I found, I, I found some incredible stuff and I found some very sketchy stuff as well. But I'd say about two years into that first business, I started, uh, it was going quite well and I was really busy and I had a lot on my plate and I started not being able to sleep very well, despite doing the yoga and all the rest of it, despite eating well, despite just, just despite being physically active, all of those kind of things. So that that's when dabbling in meditation went to committing to meditation and within about three or four days after having a couple of weeks of proper insomnia which is quite deliberating i Mm. started sleeping a little bit better and the next day it got a bit better and then within three or four days the problem had been solved so it was at that point that i started thinking about well okay what else can this thing do? We hear about big name entrepreneurs going about on about it. We're increasingly hearing about big name sports people going on about it. So yeah. it was at that point that I started like really getting curious about it. And I would say it's at that point that it became a habit. And I'd, I'd say that's where my exploration started. Okay. And it's been, tell me, tell me through the journey from, from the beginning to, to where you're at at the moment. And obviously the business that's, that's come around with that. Yeah, of course. So I, my first business was a real estate business that I started in 2012. That went reasonably well. I, I then set up a real estate technology business, but that, and that was about five years ago. And I started thinking about, okay, 
I've got this going, but do I really want to stay in this space? Because if, if you recall what I was talking about earlier is that I want to do something in health or technology or, or the two combined. And, and what had happened is that I spent 18 months trying to do stuff in that space and I got nowhere and I was incredibly frustrated. And, and the reason for that is just because I didn't know what to do and I didn't know what I know now. And I went and got the entrepreneurial experience. I, I, I made one business work. I started another one that, that's actually doing really well these days as well, uh, but, but I'm no longer involved in it. And I started thinking, well, I've got the experience now. I know how to do this. And that, that's kind of where I want to be. And I think that's that's why I'm here and what, what I'm here to do. So firstly, it was a personal thing. Like, where can I be, be the most valuable? And then the second thing, just being really honest about it, is that I could see from a market perspective, it was probably going to be quite lucrative because we're basically getting older we're living longer, but we're getting sicker younger. And that creates a big demand for things that can solve the problems in that space. So about five years ago, I started looking at the whole wellness industry. I was really still really busy on on real estate. And the whole reason I was in real estate was because I'd basically gone to it out of desperation because I hadn't been able to make anything else work. And I just started consulting some well-being entrepreneurs, started helping them with their businesses a couple of hours a week, that kind of thing. And, and that helped me to see the whole space. And at this point, meditation was an ingrained habit. It was helping me massively as an entrepreneur. It was helping me to be calmer and more focused in negotiations. It was helping me to sleep well. It was helping me to just train my attention and focus in in a world which is filled full of distractions. So fast forward a little bit and, and a couple of years ago, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do in the whole well-being space. I, I've looked at all the different business models and I really wanted to take my time over this. I'd mentored quite a few entrepreneurs. I'd invested in a couple of startups in the space and I thought it would be quite cool to do something in a meditation space, but there's already some really big meditation apps. So I've, I've got to really figure out where a good gap might be in and, and how I might go about that. And so, so I started my current startup, Mind Unlocked, as a bit of a side project, a bit of an experiment. And I thought that the basic thesis is this. Meditative practice is incredibly well proven from a scientific point of view. And, and we're talking about Harvard, the University of Massachusetts, the University of California, like re- really impressive institutions with really robust research. However, there's a whole bunch of people who are stressed anxious or having sleep issues who are not meditating and they've heard about meditation but they're very skeptical about it so there's clearly a disconnect between the two in, in, in that yeah. th- this quite skeptical pragmatic group is not connecting with meditative practice and we, and we know the reason why the reason is because there's this perception that to meditate you need to go to the buddhist center or a yoga studio and you need to light incense and maybe chant and maybe sit in a certain way so so my basic thesis was if i can create, if I can bridge that gap, especially given that I have a foot in each world with my entrepreneurial experience and my very kind of Western upbringing, but but the fact that these Eastern philosophies are a big part of my, my life and what makes me effective and what makes me happy. If I can bridge that, then there could be something here. So I thought the easiest way to test that is let's start an event, do three of them and see what happens, see who comes, see if they come back. And let's really focus on guest experience. You, you know, let, let's let's think about the whole thing from start to finish, as opposed to here's just another meditation event. So the idea was we'll, we'll do some guided meditation in a very non-woo-woo way in, in a, and then marry that with hard science and really practical stuff that people can actually implement into their own lives. So that was towards the end of 20. 20- 
17 that I decided that. And over the course of from September 2017 through to the end of 2018, 15 months, we ended up doing about 70 events, 7-0. So those three initial events went well enough to make it 10 events. 10 became 20 in two venues and 20 eventually became 70 with sponsorship from ASICS, with a partnership with the Evening Standard or all of those kind of things. So that that's kind of how that seed started growing. But at this point, I still wasn't sure if I wanted to do it as a business or not. I just knew that I had something that people were resonating with. And along the way, we went from sort of meditation centric to actually looking at mental well-being as a whole because because the the agenda was never let's push meditation it was let's work out really research-led and practical ways to approach stress sleep focus creativity anxiety all these kind of things so you know we, we kind of look at that as a whole but we also see meditation as a foundational cornerstone mental well-being practice because if if somebody meditates then they're going to get multiple benefits in, in a lot of those kind of areas yeah it's fascinating i mean it's, as i said I've, I've i've meditated for for daily for for a couple of years now and i think that uh, I, I can see the gap that you're seeing there is so much noise and distraction and also it's so hard to f- understand whether the information that you're trying to research stuff, how viable it is and, and how scientific it is. And, and it's almost quite stress inducing just to, to try and find information on, on things like mental welfare and, and, uh, and meditation. So it's quite hard to navigate that. Yeah, t- totally. So that, that's the gap that we're filling now, which is taking a very research-led, practical approach to mental well-being as a whole. And, and you know, l- looking at it with quite a sceptical, pragmatic filter. And I think there's a lot of very well-intentioned misinformation in the wellness world in general, and especially around meditative practices. So I, th- I think the vast majority of people in that space are very well-meaning, but they either don't understand why the way they talk about things is alienating, or just just being really frank about it, that they're, they're giving out advice, which is just quite frankly not actually the case. So to give you a couple of examples of that, I, I, I've heard all sorts of things like, you must meditate at 6.30 in the morning or you must meditate twice a day for 20 minutes or you must meditate with intention. And and the reality of that is none of those things are the case. Actually, it's way more personalized and nuanced than that. And to get to get uh, talking about the physiological benefits, the hard science benefits, you don't have to do any of those things. But these people say those kind of things because that's what they've been t- and it's not always I suppose they're trying to find a niche they're trying to find a niche as well i mean you can look at it, any kind of training and ultimately mindfulness is is training your mind in many ways and you see that in terms of cycling coaching or gym books where where a celebrity individual will have their sort of niche and then build a whole empire out the back of it whereby you know you even see it with sort of parental guides you know they'll have one bit of advice and then build out a whole element of all sorts of nonsense around it to sort of pad out a book or pad out a a course to sign up and that's why it's so misleading yeah and I i think you know if that piece of advice is um something foundationally true that's going to work for most people that then so be it, but that's often not the case with these things. And, and, you know, it's a good chance to talk about, well, what is science? Because I think science is actually quite misunderstood. Science doesn't work with absolutes. It works with probabilities. So if something is scientifically proven, what, what it means and robustly, then what it means is that is going to work for most people most of the time based on the, these ways of empirically proving that fact. It doesn't mean that everything's going to work for everyone. So, you know, the fundamental thing I believe is whatever works for you, 
do that thing. And not everything is going to work for everyone. The benefits of things that have got some sort of clinical research around them or have got some sort of scientific backing behind them is that there's a higher chance they're going to work for most people. And there's a higher chance that they're things that you can actually build other practices around. That's interesting. I mean, it'd be good to, to get your sense, let's sort of, sort of pivot back to, to the cycling piece, but but more generally, you know, I think to your point, it is a very stressful time at the moment. It's, for, it's strange times, sort of unprecedented. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people are, well, hopefully staying at home or, or, or in lockdown. So they have the time to maybe try some of these things. So it's a good opportunity if you're interested in p- sort of exploring meditation to do that. But what, one of the things that, that I see with, with regards to cycling community, Community. You look at some of the more more dedicated athletes. I think in terms of four pillars of success, people have incredibly focused on on their training, specifically on their on bike training. They're very disciplined, and they'll they'll do that very well. They're also most of the time pretty good on on the diet side of things, and 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 that can become a problem for a lot of cyclists becoming too obsessed in terms of weight but tend to have those two locked down now that now the two pillars i, I feel that cyclists potentially drop the ball or, or don't focus on as much as they should are often both sleep and the importance of quality sleep and also stress management and just general well-being and i think that well, my personal view is i think meditation can dramatically help with that certainly building a habit of meditation can help with that but say you're listening to this and you're sort of skeptical of the whole thing what would you say to them if someone's coming to you and saying look i'm not sure i believe it i'm a cyclist i don't have much time i've got a busy life and a family i do my training i eat well why would I, why do i need to embrace this habit into my life what would you say to them? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because I think it comes up a lot. So my position on this is that I don't think that everybody needs to meditate necessarily. But, and, and this is the big but, if somebody is not meditating, but they do think that they've got concerns about their stress management or level of stress in their life, or they're feeling anxious, or they're not sleeping as well as they should, or from a physical perspective, they're not performing as well as they could, then they really need to look at meditation. And I'll explain why. The reason is that it's been scientifically shown by some pretty interesting studies that it can help in all of those areas in in, in a way that you don't have to even have to wait that long to get that kind of benefit. And, and you will know and feel that benefit as well. So I like to talk about stress management in the context of performance, r- rather than in the context of Let's just kind of feel nice and not sure and, and not be so sure about what result we're getting. In the context of performance, um, it, it's about counteracting the effects of adrenaline and cortisol. Because if somebody is stressed about their life situation and then they're doing a physical discipline like cycling to a reasonably serious level, and then they've got their nutrition down. The pieces that are missing that are really easy to fix is how can they get better sleep and how can they set their body so that it recovers faster and better. So when we talk about the recovery, where something like meditation fits in is that it a meditative practice will counteract the effects of adrenaline and cortisol because what happens is when we pump our system full of adrenaline and cortisol, which which will happen when we do any sort of exercise where our heart rate is raised, so any sort of exercise where we can't talk clearly and where, where we can't breathe easily at that point what's happening is that our body is moving into fight or flight mode which is what a stress response is and blood is going to our extremities our pupils are dilating our heart rate is raising our blood pressure is rising and cortisol is dumping glucose into the blood and 
raising our blood sugar, right? This is this makes complete sense when you need to be on high alert because your body thinks that we are about to need to fight or flee. The issue is in today's world is that all the physical stuff we do, if it isn't slow and controlled, we'll, we'll do that as well as stressful jobs, stressful family lives. And then to make it even worse, all those pings on the phone, all those emails that come in, that they, they do this at a very micro level. So if we don't take our yeah, ex- exactly. So if we don't take our foot off the handbrake, then what happens? I mean, it doesn't take genius to figure out that if we keep on pushing ourselves in terms of blood pressure, blood sugar, heart rate, then it raises the baselines and all of those things. And that's where we start moving into metabolic disease. And this this is why, part, one of the reasons why you could take very fit and healthy people or very fit people who, who then have cardiovascular incidents because they're not doing the recovery piece and i think if you look at any pro athlete not a single one of them at that level who knows what they're doing is going to train hard for seven days a week and not have their rest days and not have their recovery days and what what a meditative practice can do is actually speed up that recovery process and make it better because what was shown uh, and this this research is from harvard dr herbert benson basically examined a lot of this stuff and he is a medical doctor and a professor at harvard and he ended up concluding that most meditative practices will induce something called the relaxation response which is the opposite of fight or flight it turns on our rest and digest systems and this is where blood flow comes back to the brain this is where our heart rate lowers this is where our metabolism lowers and what it does is it turns on our body's healing systems so it's wow we we talk about practical terms it's a way to actually cut down your recovery time but but you have to do it and start noticing because it's it's not so you can't see it's not like it's, it's not like a muscle you can measure it's not like a photo you can take and look in a mirror three months later and say i'm different in this way and that, that's part of the problem with all these kind of mental disciplines it's more down to when these things happen and they change you will know they've changed because you will feel differently and you'll be showing up differently yeah that's i i, I completely understand that and it's quite interesting and i'll be fascinated to know if anyone's done a study or looked at the fact that if you look at athletes across all sports and some i wonder if some of the greatest sportsmen and women that we've been around over the last however many years whether the ones that have excelled are naturally better at turning off and naturally better at relaxing and giving them more recovery i wonder if there's any correlation between having a quieter mind and performing better. You know, the, I'm talking about the greats, you, you know, the Usain Bolts or the sort of outliers, I suppose. I wonder if they have that ability. It'd be quite interesting to look into that, wouldn't it? It, it would. I mean, I mean, I think with, with the Usain Bolts, that there's obviously a huge amount of natural talent there. And, and what, what I mean is that their ceiling is higher. Uh, and for them to achieve that ceiling, they've got to do a whole bunch of stuff around training, nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I, what, what I would say, and I think this is quite an important point, we talk about meditation in the singular because it's convenient, but actually it's an umbrella term for a range of related disciplines, a bit like course, sports yeah. or or exercise. So there is one form of meditative practice that pro athletes have been doing for a long time, and that that's the whole visualization piece. And that, that's something that happens at Olympic level, professional level. And the reason for that is that it's kind of twofold. One is that if we imagine something vividly enough, and, and the vividly is key, then our brain starts acting as if that's the actual experience it's had. And that's how you can build muscle memory. And, and that's how, you, that, you know, that, that sort of thing. But the other thing is, if you're doing that process, and you're sitting still to doing it, 
do it and you're going internal, then quite naturally your breathing will get deeper. It will come from the diaphragm more. And, and it's actually that breathing response that is largely responsible for basically lowering the heart rate, lowering the metabolism. So another area, I mean, this is not not an area that I'm any sort of expert in, but I think breath work is really worth exploring as well as, as a bit, yeah, as a bit yeah, of a yeah. bridge or a complementary practice. Well, particularly for uh, for cy- uh, cyclists as well. And, and in fact, there was a famous incident where um, Chris Froome descended on his uh, on his handlebars a number of years ago in the Tour de France. And there were definitely people sort of speculating that actually it wasn't an aerodynamic decision. It was actually a, deci- a recovery, a breathwork decision to help, whether that could be a complete load of rubbish. But I was reading quite recently that... Um, the England rugby team have adopted this as well. So what they'll do is in short break, breaks of play, they'll come together and they'll they'll take like a sort of instant mindfulness in terms of recalibrating, breathing and before going back out again, which I thought was fascinating to hear in such a sort of physical sport that it's even sort of creeping into to performance there as well. Yeah, for, for, for sure, because I, again, I don't really know what they're doing specifically but the point is that this is brain training, like all, all meditative practice is actual brain training. It's not anything other than teaching your brain how to react in certain scenarios the same way that you're teaching your physical body if you're doing physical training. So yeah. to, to give a couple of th- thoughts around that, one of them, I don't know if this comes up a lot in cycling, but um, you know, wh- why do we instruct people to breathe through their nose rather than through their mouth? We instruct them to close their mouth and breathe through their nose. It's because when you breathe through the nasal cavity that the upshot is that the oxygen that enters your blood is higher than when you do it through the mouth so you're basically really? able to you know get a better benefit for the same level of effort and, and that, that's why you, you know if you look at athletes who or, or even like you know weekend warriors like like us who tr- train a certain way and then if you start learning to close your mouth when you're running or snowboarding or cycling or whatever it is you start noticing your aerobic capacity starts increasing over a period of time and, and it's uh you know there's there's lots of things like that as well Oh, that's that's super interesting. It's and, and to sorry, your point about thing, sort of, oh, go, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say the the thing about sort of training your brain to react in in a certain way. It's uh, you know if we're training our focus through some meditative practices, which, which can do that really well, and anything in the mindfulness family of meditation, where you're focusing on your breath, or you're focusing on on body parts, or or you're focusing on you know that focusing on a on a resonant sound or something like that that's that's basically training focused attention and it means that in the real world it means that we can focus better and most importantly when we are distracted we can bring our focus back more easily so it it is literally training in private for things that are going to help us in, in the actual world yeah, how we react to things. And that was going to be my question, really. I mean, I think even if you go back sort of 40, 50 years ago, I think the concept of going to the gym to work your body out was pretty alien to most people. It was, certainly wasn't as big as it's become a multi-billion dollar industry globally now. Do you think, obviously you're, you're hedging your bets on it, but do you think we're going to see a huge boom in the development and understanding and the practice of meditation and and mindfulness and and basically working the mind out over the next sort of 30 40 years i think as the world's getting more dis- more distractions in the world it's probably going to be needed right yeah you, you've touched on a couple of quite important things here actually so the first one is we uh, when i say we i mean us here in 2020 who are sort of 
relatively young enough to still be going on bike rides and still be going on snowboards and stuff like that. We don't know that if you go back to the 50s, the concept of going for a run was completely alien. The concept of yeah. doing any exercise was completely alien. If, if you read the history of Nike, there's some really good stuff in there about, about how, you know, when, when they started, it was a counterculture. It wasn't what it is today. But what's happened is over those decades, we've learned enough about physical science that we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that exercise is generally good for us, provided it's safe for us and provided it's appropriate for who we are. And we're seeing a similar revolution with these mind practices or inward practices that include meditation, include breath work, include include any sort of introspective practice where number one there's there's starting to be a ton of scientific research going on and that's been going on for some time but it's really exploded in the last like five to ten years the the other thing is that as a counterculture we're already seeing it enter the mainstream and you you hit the nail on the head i think the reason it's happening that why are people meditating today when they weren't 10 or 15 years ago. It's because 10 or 15 years ago, life was simpler, less stressful, less distracted. And a lot of this is intertwined with the rise of technology in the last 20 years. And I say the last 20 quite deliberately, because it starts with the always on relatively free internet uh, 20-ish years ago. And then just over 10 years ago, the smartphone revolution started. And the smartphone revolution means that now now it's mobile, social, in our pocket, and on 24-7. So um, yeah. why our minds are so busy now compared to before is because before our opportunities were quite limited. There was only a certain number of TV channels. There's only a certain number of information we can get. There's only a certain amount of time that we could do things, and, and then, it's, then it's kind of cut off, and then there's nothing to do except have dinner with your family or loved ones or whatever, or, or with your friends and wind down and go to sleep and not have screens in our face that screw with our screw with our melatonin production and that kind of thing. So a big part of the rise in these kind of practices is because we now live in a world where we need to do on purpose what used to happen naturally. Does that make sense? It's like a counterbalance. I hadn't really thought of it that way before actually. So it's trying to get back some sort of de- decorum as polluting our head with blue light and I'm actually wearing my blue light glasses now. You'd be glad to know. Uh, <laughs> um, it's one of the very best supplements you can possibly take because this is the, I know it's not the focus of what we're talking here, but I hang out with a lot of biohackers and I would consider myself as one as well. And, uh, you know, we, we, we do a bunch of things like that that might seem a little bit weird, but uh, you talk about all this supplementation and all this stuff that the, the best supplement anyone can have is blue light block, blocking glasses like, that that one will make a bigger difference than making sure you yeah, take your vitamin right. C. Yeah, actually, the, I've, I've just in the last few months been wearing blue light glasses and then at night actually wearing a sort of blackout blindfold as well. It makes a huge difference to sleep quality. Yeah, big time, big time. And it, this, this all goes back to like evolutionary theory and trying to live naturally in a world that's very unnatural and, and it marries my other interests which is technology and i'm very involved in technology for mental health and technology for emotional well-being so i i get to see a lot of this stuff early so going back to the point you're making before do i think we're going to see a revolution in terms of mind practices and mental fitness and so on i i would say from, from where I see it, it's already happening. It's already starting to explode. And I get to see a lot of this quite early. And, and that's why for economic reasons, that's part of the reason why I decided to focus on this area. And, and then the other side is, of course, I'm very deeply interested in it anyway. So, um, you know, I, I, I do think it's already starting to get normalized and it's going to become more normalized over the next you know, five, 10 years or so. And, and, and again, given what's happened in the world with this pandemic, 
everyone I know who's in the sort of mental well-being space and especially the ones who are online like our our traffic has increased our demand has increased because all of a sudden people yeah people who weren't that stressed now it's a bigger problem that's fascinating yeah i think there's a lot of people whose imaginations are going into overdrive with everything's going on because i don't think the press help with that press care about the press's agenda it's always worth remembering uh you've you've touched on something there My, my number one mental well-being tip at the moment based on everything I'm seeing is limiting news consumption and being discerning in their sort in, in your sources because all the entrepreneurs I speak to all the other people I speak to that, that you know more recently family members and older friends who, who are understandably coming to me to talk about mental health that there's a very clear color, correlation between the volume of news consumption and lack of discretion around sources and levels of anxiety it, it, it's yeah. as clear as day to me yeah, it does, it, it, it's, it's fascinating to hear. It doesn't surprise me at all, but it is amazing. And, and going on to that, but rather than sort of on the pandemic side, but in terms of sources, and I'll be really keen, I, I want to get on to uh, Mind Unlocked, but I'd be really t- keen to get your view on resources, basically, where people can go, how they can start this journey. I know I'd be keen to start that off by getting your view on these kind of mega apps that we're seeing, you know, the Headspace and the Calms. I, I think people are probably most familiar with those uh i myself have tried them and and have mixed views on them to be honest with you but i'd be keen to get your views on them and also then we can hopefully we can go on and talk about where where people should be looking for information and how uh, mind unlock can help people as well yeah sure um so so i think my, my view on those big mega apps is i think as a starting point they're absolutely brilliant. I think think for somebody who's never meditated before and they just want to sort of get a sense of what it might be like uh, and start learning the very basics, they're absolutely brilliant because it's one click to download them and you can do them on, on your agenda uh, in your time. So so my, my again, just being really transparent of the two, I think Calm is the better app. And, and the reason for that is because I think Headspace, whilst it's done an incredible amount of good things for our space in, in terms of, growing it I, I think it's actually very limited in, in ter- terms of what's what's really there and, and and the variety in there and so on so i really like calm and but the app that we recommend the most more than any other is called insight timer and the reason we recommend it is because it's free to access so you don't have to pay anything and it has the largest library of guided meditations anywhere in the planet so with insight timer you can filter the meditations down to their down to how long they are, whether it's a male or female voice, whether the spiritual or religious content. So you can remove that if you don't want it, or if you want that, then you can exclusively look at that. So that that's, you know, it's nothing to do with us, but we, we recommend that app more than any other app. And I think the, the other thing about sort of getting started is, again, for somebody very new to it, five to 10 minutes, a few times a week is a really good amount to start with. One of the things that frustrates me is when I see meditation folks telling people that they should meditate for half an hour a day or 20 minutes. It's a bit like telling somebody who has never been to the gym before or who hasn't been for a long time that your starting point should be, let's do a one and a half hour beast of a session. When, yeah, because when, when, it's when hard you, to do half an hour meditating. I mean, I've, I've been doing it daily yeah, for two hard. years, but to keep the focus hard. that long is almost impossible. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's just the wrong place to start and it's very it's 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 a it's a real 
frustration when when I see that kind of advice being given out because again because that's the best of what that person knows and it's what they've been taught and and they might have learned that by going to an ashram for 10 days or or a meditation retreat for 10 days but the reality is that people don't you know I don't have time to do stuff like that and and, you know I'm a pretty busy busy guy as well so I think anything more than kind of 10 or 15 minutes is of of total time is unpalatable much in the same way that you you know you you say to somebody who wants to get into shape who's never been in shape in their life physically uh, okay now we're going to hit the gym for one hour every day for seven days a week it's just that that's not the way that effective habit formation works so the way that effective habit formation works is that you get into the habit of just doing the thing in a very small way first and the best resource that we recommend for habits is james clear's atomic habits have you read that one no i haven't actually i'll put that in the show notes it's, it's a great it's a great audio book and it's a great written book he only wrote it about a year and a half ago and it's uh I, I, it's my most read and recommended book of last year and it will be again this year I, I went through it four or five times last year but uh you know he's taken some really great research from BJ Fogg and Charles Duhigg and you know absolute masters in this space but he's given it like a modern twist so that it's really relevant for our smartphone always on super distracted weekend warrior type existence oh definitely that's on my next to read list then thank you and, and then what, what i was going to say something we've done in response to what's going on is that we've actually just published a, a like a guide to how to get meditating asap within minutes and it's just eight points and it's like do these things download this app do this do that and and, and you'll just get it done. And, and I think it just cuts through the fluff of like, do I need to sit a certain way? Do I need to like clear my mind or all of those kind of questions that come up? Perfect. And where, where can people find that? So that's mindunlocked.co forward slash meditation. Really simple. Brilliant. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. And we've got, we've got more detailed guides and we've got a way more detailed course, but that's not the right starting point. No, but I, I okay. So, so someone get, gets, into it or they want to go a little bit deeper C- can you quickly talk us through the course to, to- yeah so, so the course the course is um how to build your personal meditation habits so this is something we hadn't seen before where rather than rather than saying okay this is how you meditate and take it or leave it we, we actually designed a course where we get somebody started so the first phase is just getting started, all the big questions, how, how should I sit, how should I do this, how should I do that? Um, and then the next phase is actually marrying a lot of the hard science to specific outcomes um, and introducing people to a variety of different styles of meditation. And then the last phase is talking about concepts like meditation versus mindfulness, flow states, which I think would be interesting to the to the active folks. Yeah, um, and, yeah. and some of the other stuff, like, like basically how to tie it all together. And, and again, if you're interested in flow states and you want to access flow states, then the gateway, the gateway to that is meditative practice without a shadow of a doubt um yeah you, you know if, if you've kind of had that on a bike or doing something else and you want to access more of that then the way you train your brain is through meditative practice and um so th- that, that's a course and we've made it so that it takes less than 15 minutes a day but both for the both to listen to the theory and actually do a guided meditation so so that that's that for me like a complete beginner could take that and it would be amazing for them. We've designed it in a way that somebody needs to have no experience whatsoever. But actually, my preference is that somebody spends a couple of weeks at least on an app first that so that they get the basics down because then they get way more out of it. So, you know, again, that's just being really kind of honest and cards on the table about it. Um, that it, it, it's, it's 
a brilliant course, and that's based on the feedback we've had, but it's something for somebody who wants to go a little bit deeper, whereas the vast majority of people just need to learn some basic techniques to help them with, with their stress or focus or sleep. Okay, that's uh, super honest. And going back to the course again, just on a personal level, I mean, if someone's been doing it for a few years, they've tried a few of these apps. And, you know, for example, for me, when I've when equilibrium is in, is good, I'm on it and I'll do it daily and it's in a good place. But ironically, when, when the, the things tilt too far the, the wrong way and you lose a little bit of balance, that's kind of when you need to be meditating most. And that's kind of when I lose the, the practice. It's kind of ironic. I suppose the course will help with things like that. So, so the, the, the thing, the beauty of when you put something out in the world, there's always things that happen that are unexpected. We designed it so a complete beginner could pick it up and get a comprehensive overview of the whole space, the science, the practicalities, uh, to the point where at the end, a complete beginner would be able to, at the end, say, okay, this is how I should meditate based on my lifestyle, based on my practices, and I don't, you know, I don't have any questions or or anything so that I can do this by myself. We don't know of an app that will teach you how to meditate by yourself. They're all guided passive experiences, which is not to say they're a bad thing, but they don't teach you how to meditate. So that's that's what we've designed. What we found is that we've had meditation teachers yoga teachers, experienced meditators, they, they, they've all signed up and done and paid for and done the course. And they're the ones who've got the absolute most out of it because they've gone and learned a bunch of stuff that they never knew on top of what they did know. And it's, it, they found that it's just made their practice easier. It's deepened their practice. It's kind of reinvigorated. So I'd actually say- It's another know, dimension as well, right? So if, yeah, yeah exactly. If you're, if you're practicing one one element or one form yeah. of meditation and, and sometimes you- it blows your mind a bit. I mean, if you're gone into in terms of, you know, there's no such thing as free will or, or the, the illusion of self and you're going down that rabbit hole and maybe you want to just take things into a slightly broader context or look at different avenues as well. Exactly. And we, we don't even get into the philosophical side because I think that's for each individual to kind of explore by themselves. But what, what we do is we stick to the, the hard science and the hard practicalities. So Oh, interesting. Uh, but, okay. But we've had, but we, but, but going to what you're saying, what we have had is when you fall into that kind of rabbit hole, and we've had, you know, meditation teachers like that, and we've had experienced people like that. They've just found that this kind of course has pulled them back to to, to the centre of why they started all these things in the first place, and it and it gives them the freedom to kind of explore again from a from a more solid base. That's been amazing. Uh, thank you so much for your time what we must do what i must get off you is is all these links that we've mentioned so we yeah, can share our listeners can find it in the show notes find you details how to get in contact with yourself as well and some of the other suggestions as well normally at this point i i ask our guests where their favorite place in the world is to cycle but given that's not really i, I can give you an answer to that you should well i was gonna uh, say where's your favorite place in the world to snowboard because it's probably uh, where a lot of people love to cycle any mountain at, at, at any mountain but I, th- I think uh aspen in particular is a special place because it's a beautiful really? town great set of mountains but on, on the cycling one you know I, I it's not a habit for me it's not a big part of my life but i did a sunday morning bike ride in new york through chinatown and across the brooklyn bridge and that kind of thing and that, that was pretty special Amazing. i've got to say yeah very cool very cool that's a great thing i mean that's there's so many reasons why we love cycling but i just think it's one of the best way what is the best way to see the world you can do it in a city you can do it up a mountain and uh, you're outside and you can do it in your own time it's that sense of escapism and it's, i think it's actually you know and that's that's one of the ironies and uh, around 
the sort of mental element when you get more serious into cycling it can become a mental strain and actually you forget the fact that one of the best mental medicines there is out there is just to get on your bike and go for a ride and just oh, soak the, up the, the link between exercise and mental well-being is already there then there's then there's stronger and stronger links between mental well-being and being out in nature and and you you, you know so you're getting that so that's where the similarities with snowboarding come in yeah. so there's, there's there's those two things so i'd say you know from a mental benefit point of view it's absolutely massive and actually uh, i think the potentially the last two things i might share with you the last place that i cycled was last summer in jackson hall in wyoming usa which is in teton national park so just south of yosemite absolutely stunning and i I think the only reason that i'm not a regular cyclist is because i live smack bang in the center of london and i don't want to cycle on the roads here but if, if i live if, if i live somewhere a little with a little bit more access i think it would be, be quite a big part of my life because it's just it, it just makes so much sense that it would be very good no it's great well we all love it thank you so much I, I, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation i'm sure everyone listening w- would agree as well i really really appreciate your time it's an inspirational story and i hope everyone listening can get something from it as well hopefully what we'll do we'll, we'll post your contact details as well so people can get in touch and ask any questions that they may have and uh, we'd love to hear how you're getting on and maybe come back on the show and, and tell us a little bit more if people have got further questions and we can discuss things further and go from there sounds good thank you so much for having me and i hope it's super useful uh, anyone listening who's got any questions around this stuff we'll we'll post the links and if you need to, if you want to get in touch then please do you're a gentleman thanks so much speak soon thank you thanks for listening please subscribe to the podcast And more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.